A bill in the Senate would, with bipartisan backing, order agencies to modernize their information technology. But it wouldn't come with any funds dedicated to doing so. So would the bill amount to anything? We get some insight from federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen. And this bill, I don't know, there is a technology modernization fund with a lot of money left over in it. And you could say, Larry, that every time an agency spends anything on IT, in effect, they're modernizing something. Tell us more about your take on this bill. Tom, we're talking here today about the Legacy IT Reduction Act of 2022. It's a bipartisan piece of legislation introduced by Senator Hassan uh, and one of her Republican colleagues in in the Senate. And the idea behind it is good. But as you pointed out, Tom, the concept of IT modernization is always something that everyone can get behind. With the rare exception of the IT modernization fund actually putting money into specially dedicated modernization of federal IT systems is something that's a really hit or miss proposition. While people do have money to spend on IT, still the great majority of funds in that sector go towards updating and maintaining legacy systems. We hear a lot of talk about ripping out old uh, non-functioning systems, but it really takes government agencies a really long time to get around to it, Tom. And I think that's one of the reasons why the senator introduced this legislation. I think it's really well intended because it would mandate that agencies actually develop a list in concert with OMB of the systems that they would rip out and require them to rip them out However, there's a key piece missing, and that's the ability to pay for all of that. Well, the other piece that's missing is what would they have in alternative to what they rip out? It's not something you can replace a legacy system overnight. And in fact, haven't a lot of agencies been working in the DevOps kind of way to replace functionality bit by bit already? That's very true. If you look across the board, uh, cabinet-level agencies, Tom, sub-cabinet-level agencies, many of them are making credible incremental progress in replacing uh, legacy systems. It may not be moving as fast as anyone would like, but many agencies are, in fact, trying to update things. Uh, The idea that uh, new systems actually need to have security baked into it is one that is widely accepted right now. Uh, You kind of mentioned that with the DevSecOps activities that are going on throughout the community. I think what this legislation is, is a message saying it's not happening fast enough. It's not happening on a broad enough scale. We'd really like agencies to put this up as a higher priority, which would be great, Tom. I'd like to have Congress put the funding up for it as a higher priority, too. And the status of this bill right now, though, is there anything that you know of that's a counterpart in the House? I don't know that there's any House counterpart legislation, but if you look at things like this, and again, this is the Legacy IT Reduction Act, bipartisan support in the the Senate. Conceptually, we know that there will be people in the House that support this type of thing. Congressman Connolly from Northern Virginia, for one. Uh, others in the House that traditionally support the IT modernization fund. It's a question of timing. Who knows if it would happen this year or if it would be something that would get attached to a larger piece of legislation for next year. Uh, it's a great idea, I think, uh, to, to do it, but it only really works if you 
uh, provide money behind it. You don't want to create another unfunded mandate for federal agencies for IT modernization or any other part of their mission. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And you're also writing this week about the number of rules coming as a result of presidential orders from the General Services Administration that would seem to complicate acquisition, whereas the agency's stated goal is to simplify acquisition. Right. And I want to say at the outset, Tom, I'm not cracking on my friends at GSA. They're just one part of the FAR Council. And the FAR Council here is really reacting to a series of presidential executive orders. Uh, The FAR Council didn't issue these executive orders but they are responsible for putting in place the regulations that govern and implement these executive orders. So even as GSA says, we really want to simplify acquisition, and you have to take them at their word for that, it's really difficult to juxtapose that against the 18, either pending or coming soon, FAR cases in just three areas, Tom. Those areas are environmental regulations, labor regulations, and cyber-related regulations. All of these have their constituencies, and I think of all of them, probably cyber is the most uh, important one. We want to make sure that our system stays secure. But it's difficult to say that you're simplifying acquisition when you're in the process of having a really robust year for new rules. Right. And we just had a new rule that was finalized earlier this month, and that is the new Deeper Buy American requirements. And even those have a backdoor in them because they're not fulfillable in many circumstances. Well, that's exactly right. And that's one that's really catching a lot of people by surprise. It shouldn't because that was one of the very first things this administration said they were going to do when they came into office. But now that we actually have the regulations out, Uh, It's real for people, and there's a lot of discussion about how realistic it is to implement those new Buy American Act requirements given global supply chains, given some of our current supply shortages, uh, and given the domestic production capability that we have today. So that's just one example of something that's going to take a time to work out. And the larger point here, Tom, is... We as a government try to do a lot of things through our acquisition system, not just acquire goods and services to meet agency missions, which is really the core goal. We've decided over the course of several decades that we need to have the acquisition system meet socioeconomic goals, increasingly environmental goals, fair labor goals, none of which are necessarily bad things in and of themselves, but Like anything else, Tom, it kind of reminds me of the bicyclist you see riding down the road who's got panniers on both sides, a backpack slung over his back, panniers on the front. That bike is still trying to move forward, but the person's not making a lot of progress because it's got a lot of excess baggage all around it. Yes, I was going to say it's more like overloading your mule than trying to make it walk uphill. But maybe a bicycle's a better, uh, that's a greener type of thing. All right. (laughs) But these rules are coming because they're ordered by the administration. So what can contractors reasonably do except watch them, read them, and be prepared to meet them? Well, that's really what contractors can do, Tom. You have to be prepared. You have to know that the market in which you're doing business today is about to change. uh, And in some ways, it's going to change 
to add increased burdens to you. It's really a market that, again, despite the rhetoric, favors incumbents, entrenched government contractors. No government contractor likes new rules and regulations, Tom, but for established companies, these are more incremental changes than things that are really going to substantially alter how they do business. That's particularly true if the federal government is already your primary customer. If you're a newer market entry or a small business, you're going to have to take a good, hard look at these rules and decide if being a federal contractor still makes sense for you. Uh, it's going to be a lot of uh, overhead that you're going to have to implement. And as we talked about with the uh, inflation rule a couple of weeks ago, it may be difficult for the government to give you extra money for your compliance with the new regulations. So I can see that a lot of companies are going to have to do their homework. They're going to have to do the math and make business decisions about whether or not this market's still a good bet for them. Oh, come on in. The water's great. <laughs> Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Thanks so much. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome, and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader, and what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person, personally, was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, we were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing. The people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and 
obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right? To try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Mm. I would describe a hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. 
um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffel Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.